Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Biscalia, a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And this month, I'm very pleased to be talking to my colleague, Dr. Philip Katz, who is professor of medicine and director of the GI Function Laboratories at Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Katz is an expert in the area of gastroesophageal reflux disease. And this month, we're going to be talking a little bit about refractory GERD and the approach to patients with difficult to manage reflux disease. So, Phil, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you. Great. Thank you. Um, so, uh, I find that frequently, and at least in my practice, and I'm, I know I'm not alone in this, that uh, we get a lot of patients sent to us, sometimes from primary care physicians, sometimes from surgeons, and many times from other gastroenterologists in which, you know, there's a patient that has, quote unquote, refractory GERD. Uh, you know, they're on, he or she is on double dose PPI therapy. Um, they may have even had a negative or unremarkable endoscopy. And they continue to have symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease. So I just, you're, you're, you're a, a, a national or international expert in this area. And what's your overall approach to a patient? I'm sure you get a lot of patients like this. What's your general approach first to this type of patient walking in your door? Uh, not an uncommon patient. In fact, probably high on the list of uh, what, gastroenterologists in particular are going to see some form of medical therapy prior to the visit, predominantly PPIs, as you've mentioned, and uh, often twice a day. So uh, I, I basically look at this in, in two buckets. The first is whether the patient has had a real workup, has had a definitive diagnosis of GERD, no GERD, and then the group that... Uh, well, that would be one group, a group, that, a group that's not had a diagnosis. And then the second group would be a person who was known to have had erosive esophagitis or an abnormal pH study and was theoretically refractory to proton pump inhibitors. The first step for me is always the same. How are you taking your PPIs? Uh, not just orally, but what time of day? You'll find many people are taking their proton pump inhibitors at bedtime, probably the least effective uh, in terms of controlling intragastric pH. And uh, as you might ma imagine, many, more than I expect, actually seem to take it uh, as needed uh, and tend to forget the evening dose, which uh, may be more logical than, than I believe. So that's my first step, John. If... Uh, the patient will or does respond. And there's some evidence that some will by simply optimizing PPI. Um, easy day, 
and uh, then easy follow-up visit. And frankly, I don't usually invade that group in a very difficult way, unless they tell me for some reason they don't want to take their PPIs, but I suspect you're going to get to that. And then uh, if they don't respond, it's workup time. If you've never had an endoscopy, you've never had a diagnosis, then please stop the PPIs. Stop them for up to two to four weeks if you can. And basically the way to do that is to tell the patient nothing bad's going to happen to them if they stop their PPIs and then figure out whether you need to use a bridge with an H2 blocker or an antacid, ideally not. Do your endoscopy off of PPIs. You'll pick up some erosions that you'll miss. Uh, you may slide in an EOE that presents atypically, but you'll get a good endoscopy uh, with absolutely no uh, PPI on board. And then if the endoscopy is abnormal, uh, then you have a diagnosis. And abnormal is grade C or D or a peptic stricture or greater than three centimeters of Barrett's, which puts you in a very high likelihood that that length is going to give you IM. Uh, we can debate grade B. Uh, I think grade B is real, but we'll come back to that if we have to. Uh, and then I go from there. Normal endoscopy, you get a 96-hour Bravo um, with a lot of instructions and uh, make the diagnosis from there. Okay. The refractory ones who had a diagnosis, I'll pause and uh, stop talking for a minute. <laughs> There's too many questions I have. Too many questions I have. You hit on a lot of good stuff that I need clarification on. So um, sure. for, first of all, uh, let's go back to the very beginning, which is PPI and the appropriate way to take PPI. So you talked about, you know, surprise that a lot of people are using them as needed. And how long does it take for a PPI to become effective? So steady state, and it's a great question. Um, steady state intragastric pH control occurs probably in five to seven days. Some uh, say three days. If you start with BID, you can probably sneak in a, a peak in three days. It's basically five half-lives. Um, how long does it take to peak with regard to symptoms? Uh, if you're an academic geek like me, 11% per week, um, <laughs> ballpark, um, you really got to wait a month to uh, look for, for peak optimization. Uh, Non-erosive reflux disease trials are four weeks long. Uh, that's because there seems to be a flattening of the curve and erosive esophagitis are eight weeks long uh, for the same reason. But symptom relief, I, I wait a month before I look okay. for a, a okay. uh, follow up. OK, you also said you, know, you also talked about taking it at night and just clarify why. Why is that bad? Is it is. So I have two thoughts that go through my mind and correct me. Number one is you know, you've already eaten your, your the, the amount of acid release. You sort of missed the window of opportunity there. That's one thought that I have. I don't know if that's right or wrong. And the other one is, is there anything to do with circadian rhythm here? And why is it better to take it in the morning, you know, uh, before a meal, all that stuff? So the, the drugs uh, require active pumps to block, somewhat of a paradox. And the best stimulus for activity is food. So taking your PPI prior to a meal, probably a half hour after a meal or even an hour after a meal will still work. Uh, 
increases your ability to control acid uh, compared to taking the drug uh, with no food for a substantial time after the dose. And we could debate the nuances of each of the available PPIs, but it's really not practical. Okay. We did a study a while ago looking at bedtime use, predominantly when Zegarid was, uh, uh, or uh, Omeprazole immediate release was a prominent uh, player. Uh, and uh, because you're not eating, you're not swallowing, you're not really making much acid uh, overnight, except for a short period, the drugs just are not as effective in controlling overnight pH when you take them at bedtime. They catch up, but you don't do as well at night okay. uh, before bed. Okay. Now, the other thing I want to just quickly ask you on is some of, one of the last things you mentioned, and you talked about endoscopy and establishing the diagnosis of GERD and, and reflux esophagitis or erosive esophagitis. And you said B or, sorry, you said C or D. So are you telling me that if I do an endoscopy and I see, you know, just what looks like classic A or B reflux erosive esophagitis, that that really is not, you cannot say that that's from acid reflux? So you, you've asked a, um, a question of debate between people who are practical and people who are <laughs> perhaps a little um, tougher on um, uh, data. So yeah. there are a reasonable number. There are a reasonable number of people with grade A who have a normal pH study. Maybe fifty percent, maybe forty percent, but a reasonable number. Okay. So. A plus heartburn is probably GERD, especially if it responds to a PPI. But if, if you're being strict about it, uh, there's, there's overlap. B is the hardest argument. A very small number of normal people have been purported to have a B. I'm fairly convinced that with no disrespect, if you really know what you're looking at and you have a patient with heartburn and regurgitation in grade B, that's GERD. I wouldn't feel compelled to put a Bravo in that patient where I might think about, you know, the nuances of downstream treatment, meaning you're thinking about surgery later, you need high dose drug, then maybe an, you know, an extra esophageal symptom, hoarseness, cough, uh, something really atypical, then maybe with a B you still study them with a reflux monitor. But, uh, you know, let's put it this way. The FDA still allows A and B if you're trying to approve a new drug. So to some degree, <laughs> it, it must be GERD. It's just not as certain as C sure. or D where you have, have basically a 90% evidence of uh, prolonged acid exposure. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So you started also uh, getting into uh, pH, pH monitoring, and that's a really, I think, important topic a uh, lot of different practices here, a lot of confusion in terms of how it's best done. Uh, so let's say you do have that patient where the endoscopy is pretty unrevealing and you're considering using pH testing. Tell us um, what to use and how to use it. And specifically, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Bravo and, and you know, pH slash impedance testing. So, so from, from a comfort standpoint, uh, to be as forward as I can, I firmly believe four days, four days is better than one. And therefore, when 
I have the opportunity, um, I'll use a telemetry capsule pH study or Bravo. Uh, I have to say after a long time doing this, um, I know where the capsule has been placed within a small era. I'll accept that most of us as endoscopists have a pretty uh, reasonable ability to measure from the squamocolumnar junction to six centimeters. <laughs> and if it's five, who cares? If it's seven, it's maybe not great, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And when you put a pH probe in with a catheter, um, you know, no matter how good your nurse or your tech or yourself are, um, it's only one day and it, it, it really does have some practical difficulties despite uh, how much information you can get on impedance height and the like. So I prefer an off therapy study with a four day uh, telemetry capsule uh, with all the nuances of two day, three day, four day, how many receivers you have, what's cost effective for the patient and the like. Okay. Okay. And what happens if you do have that patient that is telling you that he or she is just unable to feel, feel as though they're unable to come off of their PPI for a period of time that would they're comfortable with? So, you know, I, I think this is a very important discussion point between um, all of us. First off, um, uh, our colleagues in Dallas and uh, uh, Stu Speckler's group with Kerry Dunbar have showed us some very provocative data that if you stop the PPI for two or three weeks, you'll actually get relapse which really augments the potential value of your endoscopy. So just for the, you know, the person listening to this, it's not trivial, you, you know, and there's plenty of evidence that EOE is masked by PPIs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's not simple. Patients get attached to these drugs. They like them. They don't want to get, they don't want to have symptoms. Um, I don't have a magic bullet, John. I, I talk to them real carefully. I try and emphasize the importance of getting a good exam, that uh, it's our best shot. Um, I do ask for a minimum of seven days so I can get an effective Bravo. I'll bridge them with H2 blockers or antacids despite my reticence to do so because I don't want to mask any good luck. Um, so basically, I do the best I can. I, I can't okay. be a better, you know, honest guy than that. But I promise you, as you well know, uh, nothing bad will come of it uh, if people stop. Yeah. What I mean, the argument, the contrary argument has been, you know, you're if you just do the Bravo, um, you know, you're you're not getting that impedance data. Uh, that and so tell me how how is that you know, how problematic that is for you and your workup for that patient. So, <clears throat> excuse me, at, at the broadest level, almost everybody we're going to scope makes acid. And with the exception of a small postprandial period, it's very unusual to have weekly acidic or true non-acid reflux if you're a normal host. So big picture, reflux is... Um, or injuries generated by acid. So, you know, if you if you take the 95% rule, the 98% rule, whatever number you want to take, it's hard to reflux and not reflux acid. So that's my starting point. 
The other side of it is, is there's no argument that being able to look at reflux height, being able to look carefully at postprandial reflux, looking at the new metric of mean nocturnal baseline impedance to look for indirect evidence of perhaps chronic inflammation, they're all valuable. Uh, and, um, you know, it's too hard to push the envelope to say never do it uh, because it would, it would be lying about what I do in my practice. At the end of the day, I just think that a four-day study offers you more information. Patients like it better. Despite the expense, it's a bigger bang for the buck. Okay, that makes sense. Um, well, I want to just pause for a second and uh, thank our sponsors, Cook Medical, who uh, have teamed up with us uh, at the ASGE to support this podcast series and we're uh, appreciative uh, for um, that partnership and supporting what they do for endoscopy. Thank you so much, Cook. Um, all right, Phil, that's that's super helpful. Let's let me change gears a bit now and talk about the patient who is having true reflux in your study, in your pH study, and you know, as as we said earlier, is really not feeling improved with double dose PPI, despite maybe changing up the, uh, the way they take it a bit and things like that. So where, where do we go next with that patient? So, you know, this is a place where, um, I believe we can really hone down on, uh, the best, uh, options and a broad based group of options for our patients. Um, and again, I think you, as a clinician, need to think a little bit clinically uh, and then uh, based on hard algorithms, data, et cetera. So the questions are, uh, is reflux still happening as an explanation for the symptoms? Uh, and if it is, um, are you comfortable, meaning the patient, with an endoscopic or a surgical intervention? Uh, and if there is a second reason for symptoms, um, how important is it in terms of adjunctive treatment um, so that the patient doesn't have an operation that will not make them better? So, you know, if I have uh, grade C esophagitis and uh, have responded, uh, to a PPI 85% of the time, it, it's hard to look me square in the eye and say, I've got some other problem. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, in a perfect world, you optimize the PPI as much as a prelude to uh, thinking about how well surgery will do, and then do an impedance pH study on therapy, where I think that that technology has the greatest value because it gives you a wealth of information and um, a, a long discussion, which could be three minutes in our world, but a very focused discussion on how important it is for the patient to take their meds and to eat during that period. Um, you get some evidence of, of symptom association. You get some evidence of uh, weakly acidic or non-acid reflux, and uh, you do pick up an occasional patient who still has abnormal acid reflux despite being on a PPI. And then you make choices. 
There are clearly some people who still have functional disease, John, as you know, as a cofactor. Um, uh, tricyclics, tricyclics, SSRI, gabapentin, uh, cognitive behavioral interventions. Uh, those are nice uh, idyllic situations and um, quite frankly, they work, but you really have to have a practice set up to where you either have an extender or uh, uh, you know, an opportunity to really explain to the patient what's going on. At the core of a true refractory GERD patient is surgery. Uh, endoscopic interventions in endoscopic interventions plus uh, a hiatal hernia repair, the so-called CTIF uh, or traditional surgery. Uh, regurgitation, I think that's a surgical disease if you can't treat it with a PPI. Good history um, and uh, you know level one evidence with magnetic sphincter augmentation and and and, and anti-reflux surgery. Uh, extraesophageal disease, a quagmire, uh, as it always will be. Mm -hmm. But I think you, th I, I think you got to start thinking about mechanical interventions um, in a truly refractory patient because it happens, even if yeah. they take their PPIs optimally. Yeah. Now, okay, that's a great, great prelude to what I wanted to ask you next, which I think is a tough question to answer. But I, I think everybody would benefit from what you, you know, learning a bit what you do and pros and cons in this, but let's just suppose for a moment that you've got everything at your disposal. You've got a fantastic, you know, foregut laparoscopic surgeon. You've got a fantastic therapeutic endoscopist um, who's, you know, experienced in TIF or CTIF or other methods. And you've got, um, uh, you know, those two scenarios at play. Uh, tell me, you know, where, where you're going to shuttle a patient towards or why you might shuttle versus one over another. So uh, the hardest part, I believe, is balancing uh, uh, patient expectations uh, with personal bias. So if the patient is looking for complete relief, and that's certainly reasonable. And the goal is no PPIs. Then um, I'm firmly in the camp that you need a hiatal hernia repair plus a second intervention. Whether it's a 360-ness and fundoplication or a toupee, uh, some kind of partial, which is the most popular for um, good reason, uh, arguing about data but the comfort level that you get less post-op issues. Um, if you have a group that is well-versed in um, transoral incisionless fundoplication, TIF, um, CTIF is gaining in popularity. My friends know that I'm a little tough on, uh, on data. Show me that it's as good, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, a good explanation to a patient, um, it is in play. If the patient is comfortable with um, the reality that they may not get as good relief with a pure endoscopic procedure, reduce your meds, maybe stop your meds, unknown uh, really how long the procedure is going to last, uh, but 
doesn't want to go to the operating room and you can't convince them that that's a better option for them than an endoscopic TIF with no high hernia repair and the right patient should be on the table with, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the understanding that, I mean, and, and we've had good success in our practice uh, when you carefully select the patient. And um, I'm very conservative. Mm -hmm. Really small hernia is mm -hmm. ideal, mm -hmm. um, whatever that means. And I think this is where a careful endoscopy with good insufflation and retroflexion to uh, understand uh, what happens at the GE junction. And you know this well, you know, if you do a little five second gig, uh, <laughs> the sphincter doesn't pop open, you call it a grade one valve. Um, then you go do your tiff and you start saying, oops. Yeah, this is much bigger. <laughs> kind of messed up today. Yeah. Um, and uh, then you have a real dilemma. So uh, yeah, it's a good procedure. It is a good procedure. Uh, still trying to find its home, and and um, but definitely on the table. I'm not a big fan at the moment of uh, uh, anti-reflux mucosectomies mm -hmm. uh, or variants of that. I'm still kind of uh, old-fashioned about you know creating that kind of defect. Um, when I think about it as a long-term consequence of bad GERD, yeah. meaning a stricture or yeah. fibrosis. Anyway, so I, yeah. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, I think that that is exactly what I'm looking for. And I think it's super helpful. And, and I think it allows people who encounter this in their practice to really think about it. And as you said, you know, careful patient selection. And a lot of this depends on the expertise that you have at your disposal too. Um, so uh, I think that makes sense. Um, I want to uh, I want to finish up in the last few minutes with um, um, a question about um, uh, future directions, and um, uh, I know that we have talked in meetings, or I've heard you speak in meetings and things like that about some of the future medical therapy with um, you know with GERD. So tell me about future directions, some new medicines on the horizon, and where you see us going with that in the last few minutes. All right. So, um, with, with, with ultimate respect to the society that's sponsoring this, <laughs> um, podcast, I, I sincerely believe that first of all, we have a responsibility to make our, um, mechanical interventions as good as possible mm -hmm. because that's a reality. This is a long-term disease. So I'm still bullish on, enhancing what we currently uh, have in our toolbox and um, looking at ways to make it better. Um, on the medical side, um, I think we need to explore very carefully uh, what uh, true lifestyle interventions might work. And historically, it's been don't eat late at night, don't eat a lot. All of that is still true. Um, but even small things like figuring out how to sleep on your left side, um, the recent studies suggesting that low carbohydrate diets might reduce symptoms. And I think it's our responsibility not to abandon that. On the medical side, uh, we'll have potassium competitive acid blockers. They will probably be launched in the first quarter or first half of 2023. These are drugs that work remarkably rapidly 
and have a a a, a stronger uh, pH control than PPIs at a single dose that will create uh, angst for people who believe that PPIs are dangerous. It'll create a whole new frontier for those of us who believe that they're not and will allow us uh, an opportunity to treat refractory disease, perhaps offer on-demand therapy in a more uh, cogent way and just give us another option. Uh, there are people out there who are trying to make uh, antacids uh, a little more useful. Um, I'm not talking about Gaviscon Ad Advanced uh, that uh, sits over in the UK and has sat there for 100 years, uh, but other people trying to, you know, make a little bit more easily available interventions. The big thing is PCAPs, and um, uh, people should look carefully and uh, do their reading and um, uh, try and avoid hype because they will be um, uh, a very, very useful add-on uh, to what we do. Yeah. Unfortunately, not much on the prokinetic side at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, probably not a lot on the mucosal side. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so unfortunately or fortunately, the money's still in acid control with its concerns. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's great. And I think uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how the PCABs uh, are utilized and, and shake up our, our field a little bit. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, Phil, as always, I, I really enjoy hearing from you and uh, talking with you and, and listening to what your thoughts are on this uh, topic, which, you know, I think is just really valuable. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. John, always a pleasure. You know, yeah. I'm passionate about this and uh, I hope it's been useful for, for the listeners. No everybody doubt. stay well. No doubt. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us again and we'll uh, hear from you next time on Listen In GI Endoscopy. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at asge.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.